HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved. With over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila. Imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Welcome to Dyed Green on HRN. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. Thank you all so much for joining us for today's show. Our guest on today's show is Dr. Brendan Dunford. Brendan is the manager of the Burren Program and is also heavily involved in the Burren Bio Trust, Farming for Nature, and the Hare's Corner. Brendan is someone that I consider to be a climate solutionary. And the projects that he's working on, including Farming for Nature, the Burren Program, are incredibly inspirational and forward thinking. And I don't know about you, Max, but after talking to him, you know, even though I was already aware of the work that they're doing in the Burren, um, and especially the farmer led conservation projects, I felt really good after our conversation. It made me feel really hopeful. Um, to know that there are people out there that are engaged in this work day in and day out and are actually making real substantive changes in their communities. Yeah, I I 100% agree. And I guess my main takeaway from it is that I come at this from a, a chef background and a cooking background. So like learning about the farmer side of things is pretty new to me in the grand scheme of things. But I think it's like a very, very important piece of the puzzle possibly more important than cooking but who knows uh time will tell but um so hearing about successes in the world of you know regenerative agriculture and sustainable farming um on like a really small scale and just hearing kind of in the nitty-gritty of being like okay how do we how do we begin this transition of moving away from destructive and extractive forms of agriculture to forms of agriculture that increase biodiversity and and increase the soil health and all this stuff and we it's it was super interesting to hear and and like you said um inspiring and positive to hear 
these stories because they're actually doing it, you know? You know, and, and I think it's also, you know, especially if you've ever been to the Burren, um, you would you would know this or you might be able to recognize it. And if you haven't, um, Brendan will walk you through what it is exactly that makes the area very unique, but it is very, it's like almost entirely like exposed limestone shale. There's very little topsoil, so there's actually not a lot of opportunity to do, um, to grow vegetables and stuff like that in most areas. So most of the agricultural programs that they do there are based around livestock. Um, but it's also really interesting to think about the fact that about 70% of Ireland's native flora actually lives in that area. Mm-hmm. So it really is, you know, it, it's very surprisingly um, biologically diverse. Yeah, no doubt. It's really beautiful. And if you've never had a chance to go, even just purely for like the physical beauty and specialness of the place, it's really worth a trip. And I'm excited to go back and see it with this new perspective that we learned about from Brendan. Yeah. And, you know, uh, people who have listened to some of our back episodes will probably remember the conversation that we had with Padraig Fogarty um, about the devastating impact that a lot of um, animal husbandry has on the Irish countryside, Um, you know, particularly sheep, um, but also cattle in terms of overgrazing. And and that's one of the things that is so inspiring about the Burren program and their um, the way that they practice what's called high nature value farming in a way that doesn't actually strip the land of its capacity, you know, to continue to grow. Yeah. Really good connection that you just made there. No, and totally. If, and I think these, these episodes, this, the, those two episodes would pair really well together because they definitely are kind of talking about two sides of the same coin. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, this is Dyed Green on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find us on Twitter at Dyed Green Pod. You can always email us at Dyed Green at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'd love to hear from you about the show, about your ideas about food, about um, future guests. So, you know, feel free to reach out to us. Max would also be really interested to learn about any recent science fiction novels that you've read that resonate with any of the guest speakers on our show. Max and I have been to the Burren several times. We've gone hiking there, visited some of the businesses in the area. And even just driving through the Burren, you can tell it's really a very unusual and beautiful place. And I know people often describe it as resembling a lunar landscape because of all the exposed limestone. I think we have a lot of American listeners on our show that are probably learning about the area for the first time listening to this. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what makes it different. Sure. Well, um, it's a very special place, no doubt about it. And it's not quite to expect um, if you're coming on a visit to Ireland, the 40 shades of green and all that kind of stuff, because um, at first look, it is kind of very barren and very rocky and uh, very harsh looking. But um, it's a land of paradox, really, because it's quite a fertile rock. It used to be called a fertile rock by the monks about 800 years ago. The name burn comes from uh, the old Gaelic term burn, which means place of stone. And the stone involved is limestone, um, which is formed about 350 million years ago. 
But the beautiful thing about the limestone is that it's uh, it's been shaped and sculpted by glacial forces, by tectonic forces, and by water solution to form all these really beautiful patterns and features at a kind of micro level, but also at a macro level. So you have these disappearing lakes called turlocks. You have these massive limestone pavements, which are you know a big flat area of rock with cracks right through it. Then you have micro features like little. Um, Kamenitsas, which are little pockets of water and algae sitting on the rock, or little runnels, which are canyons formed by the rainwater running across the surface of the rock and, and carving out these beautiful shapes. And you big boulders sitting perched in the landscape, which are dropped by glaciers 25,000 years ago. And you've got cave systems, so it's like a block of Swiss cheese, there's caves riddled um, beneath the landscape. So that's really special and it's kind of what you notice first time. Um, but it is misleading because between the rocks and in little um, um, valleys and stuff like that, and on plateaus, you'll find patches of vegetation, which are just full of different, uh, very colorful plants. Uh, and of course, with them, insects and animals. So you've got within this landscape about 70% of Ireland's native flora. So you've got about 23 or four different orchids, which is very high for Ireland. You've got gentians, which are plants from the Alps. You've got mountain avens, which actually come from the Arctic. And then you've got plants like the maidenhair fern and Dinslard orchid, which come from the Mediterranean. So you've got this amazing botanical metropolis with plants and communities from all over the world, which are a pure joy to behold. And of course, when you have lots of different plants, you get lots of different insects like butterflies and moths and beetles and all sorts. And then you'll get a, 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 in such an undisturbed landscape as the burn, you'll find a lot of really interesting wildlife from pine martens, which are um, they call it the cat crown or the, the, the tree of the cat. Uh, the cat. Um, uh, you'll also find uh, obviously lots of hares, which are really important to, to our folklore and to our heritage. And you'll find beautiful bats and you'll find feral goats and all that kind of thing. So that's really special as well. But for me, maybe the most special thing to finish um, would be the fact that this landscape is like a, a, it's like a giant archaeological site. You can track the evolution of human occupation and use of the landscape over about 6,000 years. And of course, it continues today um, through farming. But the first farmers came here 6,000 years ago. They built dolmens to bury their dead. They cleared away um, the woodland to form fields, which they um, delineated with stone walls, which still survived four and a half thousand years later. They built ring forts to protect their cattle and later these tower houses. Um, so every period from the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the early Christian period to the present day is represented in stone structures scattered across the landscape. So that's really special, the human influence on the landscape. And finally, then there's the living culture. So you have great music, you have poetry, you have literature, and you have great traditions like the old tradition of winter grazing in the barn where the cattle go onto the hills for wintertime. So, you know, geologically, archaeologically, ecologically, culturally, it's just a magical place. That's great. I think that you touched on something that I wanted to ask as a follow-up question. I think that people would be surprised to learn that animal agriculture has been practiced in the area for many, many years. Can you talk a little bit about how this is possible? Yeah, um, they used to say at the barn, because of it, it's very rocky with very, very shallow soils, that it's a country where the cowman and not the plowman is king. Basically, you can't plow this land. It's just too rough. There's not enough soil in most cases. So your only real option as a farmer is to graze it. So farmers have grazed it for 6,000 years with a mixture of cattle and sheep 
and goats and horses and different animals like that. So um, when you look at it, it looks very rough and rocky. But like I said, there's patches of vegetation, which actually are very sweet and nourishing um, between the rocks. Um, so th those are the kind of the focus uh, for the grazing animals. The bigger difficulty for grazing animals in the barn is the lack of water, because when the rainwater falls, um, it just goes right through the cracks in the ground into the caves and out to sea. So during summertime, for instance, there's very little water available in the barn uh, and it can be very harsh in terms of the light and the heat. So farmers years ago recognized this and they started to put their cattle up in wintertime, because in wintertime, with, with the rainfall that we get here, about two meters of it, six feet of it every year, um, the water table rises up. So these disappearing lakes reappear, little springs of calcium-rich water peek out from beneath the rocks and you have little pockets of water sitting on the surface of the stone. So the cattle can actually survive here with plenty of water. But at that time of the year as well, there's plenty of the forage, that, that, that grass and those herbs which have gone to sleep for the winter. They, they, they provide a really good source of nutrients and minerals for the cattle. So they forage away for the wintertime. And what farmers found is using the system of winter grazing, where the cattle go up onto the hills in wintertime, drink the calcium rich water and eat the vegetation, that when they sit down on the limestone, it's actually really warm. It's like a giant underfloor heating system, which soaks up the summer heat and dissipates it during wintertime. So we often say that, you know, for, for, for cattle and for mainly cattle now, but sometimes sheep as well and goats up on the barn, it's like a five star hotel. You've got the best bed. You've got a delicious menu um, of, of herbs to, to, um, to eat. And then you've got a great bar with this calcium rich water, which is, of course, great for your bones and for your teeth, which, which farmers and livestock, I'm sure, really appreciate. Can you talk a little bit about the burn program and the burn bio trust and the work that these organizations do and how they're yeah. connected to the farmers and the other, um, you know, other aspects of the region? Yeah. So I suppose we all recognize um, how important the burn is as, as a landscape full of heritage. It's like a repository of Ireland's greatest heritage. So there's a lot of protection orders from Europe and from Ireland protecting the archaeology and biodiversity and all that. But actually, that doesn't really work or it works to a limited extent because we, as well as protecting the landscape, we need to continue to manage it in a way that uh, suits. So every winter, we need to get those cattle up there grazing it back so that the spring flowers can come out, always rare. Because without farming, the biodiversity gradually reduces and disappears and the burn becomes a kind of a scrub woodland region as well, which is nice. But we want to hang on to some of these orchid-rich grasslands that we have today, which are very special. So about 20 years ago, we started some research in the barn uh, and we found the story that look, farmers aren't the problem here. Farmers are essential to protecting this landscape into the future. If we want the barn to, to, to be what it is into the future, we need to sustain the farming activities. So we set up a little charity called the Burn Bio Trust to tell that, that story, the importance of the local community in protecting the landscape. And then we went into local schools to try and persuade those kids in there, um, farmers' sons and daughters, that look, you guys are the important ones. It's not these fancy scientists and archaeologists, but you little kids, your ancestors and you yourselves and your children in the future who are the ones who are going to look after this place. And then we moved on to celebrate the culture and get people included in the culture of the burn and the heritage and its management through festivals like the Winter's Weekend and Burn and Bloom and Every walk, every month rather, we have a walk led by a local farmer or talks. So we wanted to reimagine the role of farming in the landscape and the role of the local community in looking after this landscape. And the Burnbill Trust has been really successful in doing that. 
But of course, to farm in places like this, you need an income uh, as well. Um, wishful thinking will only get you so far. So farmers have been inclined to leave this landscape because it's just a lot of work and very little monetary return. Um, you can only produ produce so much food here um, uh, uh, to sustain your family. So we came up through the Burn program with an idea whereby we pay farmers to, as well as produce food, to manage the landscape through farming. And we did it with a beautifully simple system. So we said to the farmers, when you take your animal to the market, the better the condition of the animal, the more money you're going to get, right? Now we're going to do the same thing with your fields in terms of the biodiversity. So if you've got a field with lots of beautiful flowers in it and clean water, that's in really good condition and really good health. So we're going to pay you more money for that. Um, but if your field is wrecked and it's being damaged, if it's not if too much farming or too little farming, it's, it's, it's losing its biodiversity, then we're going to pay you less and less. And we introduced that result-based payment system about twenty about 12 years ago here in the Burn. First farmers in Ireland um, to, to do it, and some of the first farmers in Europe as well. And it's been fabulous ever since because we're no longer telling the farmers what to do. We're saying to the farmers, this is what we want you to produce, as well as great food, produce these great uh, environmental outcomes and we'll pay you. So those farmers innovate, they create their own solutions to the problems. And every year since we started, there's been an improvement in the environmental health of the barn and consequently an improvement in the income that these farmers are getting um, from, from the state. Because here in Europe, we've got a lot of public funding for environmental management, but um, the barn is a really good example on how you can spend it and get uh, really good value from that. Do you come from a farming background yourself or and did you grow up in the Burren? Is that sort of where the impetus for this came from? So I'm from I'm from a farming background down in Waterford. We had a small mixed farm. Most farmers would have been mixed farms at that stage. So dairy cows and sheep and some beef cattle and some poultry and some pigs and all this sort of thing. But I was uh, after finishing college, training as an engineer, I went abroad for about 10 years, places like the Hansons and mm -hmm. Uh, I used to work there and then travel um, for the winter in, in you know, Central America and Asia. I did that for a good few years, but then I came back to Ireland and I, I did a PhD then um, through my college in Dublin, but the PhD was based in the Burren. So I came here first in the late 90s, 98, I think, as a student. My job was to try and uh, explore the relationship between farmers and the Burren landscape. It was considered to be Farmers are considered to be, you know, a, pr a problem or a challenge when it came to the burn. But I suppose the story I told through the research and the cooperation of, of the farmers here were absolutely brilliant. Um, the story I told was that, look, um, the right type of farming is, is really critically important. Of course, the wrong type of farming is very bad, but the right type of farming, we don't talk about it enough, but that's really important. So, yeah, I've been here then. They call us, they call, they call me now a blow-in. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not from here, but I've been blown in here for about 23 or four years now and got my family here now. So I'm very much part of part of the landscape. A permanent blow in, maybe. <laughs> so the program um, that you were talking about is results based, meaning that farmers get rewarded financially for their participation. Can you talk a little bit about the funding for the program, uh, where that comes from and maybe what are some of the limitations to that way of doing things? Yeah, so um, farmers get paid not for their participation, but for the results that they deliver. So if you're in the program, you're not cooperating, that's fine. You don't get paid. Right. So in Europe, um, we have something called the Common Agricultural Policy, which supports um, farming because farmers in Europe have to, have to adhere to certain animal welfare and environmental standards. 
So there's quite a big purse, public purse, um, from built up from taxpayers' um, funding um, to deal with those issues. So we use that fund um, in Ireland to support national agri-environmental schemes and more targeted ones like what we have here in the borough. So it's very much funded 100% by the public taxpayer, which I think is sustainable because the public are benefiting from the services delivered by these farmers, the pollinator services, educational recreation services, um, high quality fruit products, um, you know, good biodiversity, clean water. So I don't have any issue with that, but we are looking all the time at um, introducing some private funding into the mix as well to make it more sustainable. And that's becoming, now that our climate and biodiversity crisis is featuring high in the media, more companies and individuals are willing to invest in programs like this to, um, to, to deliver. One of the things that I think is really unique about what you're doing is what you were just talking about in terms of the project being farmer-led. And that's something I think we don't hear a lot about, especially in the United States. I think a lot of people in the environmental movement see some farmers as maybe impediments to sustainability, or there are some farmers that might have been farming industrially for a long time who might be interested in, in converting to sustainable farming, or um, but perhaps they're intimidated. We hear a lot of arguments about how it costs too much money. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about when you're devising a program like this, like what happens when farmers aren't involved or when farmers are just completely left out of sustainable management plans? I think it's a, I think it's a disaster. I mean, um, what works, uh, what's really worked well for us is a kind of um, this co-creation approach. So I think the farmers can't do it without the scientists and the policymakers. But certainly the policymakers and scientists can't do without the farmers because they're not the ones that are going to be herding cattle out in the mountain in the middle of wintertime. So you need both, to be honest. So we've we've drawn a lot on local knowledge to inform our practices, but we've married it with really good science and research. And then we've built a policy framework to support that, that economic piece that you described as being a, a challenge. So um, for us, if you leave farmers out from the beginning, you'll never succeed because they resent, they will rightly resent um, being spoken down to by outsiders who they feel aren't qualified to speak. And I suppose one of the, my moments of learning here in the burn would be, you know, when I go into a farmhouse and the farmer maybe has done a lot of damage to local habitats and, and thinking, gosh, this is, um, this is terrible. What is this guy at? But then when you talk to these farmers, there's usually a very rational explanation for what they've done and how they've done it. And what I've, we've been trying to do here, our team, is to try and um, figure that out and um, like why you do this and can we come back with a better um, proposal to you so that you'll actually do something different. So I think to criticize is easy, but to understand is, is, is useful. So we've been doing that. And to me, there's three things that we need to get right um, if, we want to, if we want to persuade more farmers to adopt more sustainable practices, because if they don't, um, we're in trouble. Um, and I describe it always as the pocket, the head and the heart. So the pocket is the financial piece. You know, it has to work financially for farmers. Now, ultimately, I think regenerative farming can reduce input costs and, and deliver greater outcomes. But I think there's a sh the market are very slow to pay the true quality or cost of food. So I think we need policy interventions in the short term. And for me, paying for results. So paying farmers for ecosystem services when they deliver them makes complete sense and it gets them over this barrier of, of, of economics. 
and hopefully in future times then these systems can be self-sustaining and, and the market can can reward them um, more so but i think that's valid the, the the pocket that's the pockets to me the headpiece is really important like how do you farm sustainably anymore Are you farming for climate for water for biodiversity for all of them that's not simple those decisions aren't simple to make they'll vary from field to field from farm to farm from region to region so the farmer does need advice on how best to go about doing these things you know based on tradition but also based on science so i think if you want to farm for beef or dairy or grain no problem you can get plenty of advice and research but if you want to farm for nature and for climate where do you go who do you talk to so i think there's that piece that has to be filled farmers will need to know they're making the right decision before they're going to transform their farm action they don't want to be left in the cold um in terms of information and advice in a few years so that's the head piece and for me the third piece then is the heart piece we've got to get farmers on board with um this new identity and this new challenge um uh, if we want them to become really ecosystem service providers terrible term but you know what i mean then we're going to have to get to get them convinced that this is the right thing to do so it's going to pay me i'm going to be supported but really when i get up in the morning i know i'm doing the right thing for my family for my ancestors but also for future generations and for the community at large so we've been working a lot on that piece we've been trying to you know position farmers as being you know not just food producers but as you know these really important ecosystem service providers so we set up a little project a few years ago called farming for nature to do that to say to people look these farmers are producing great food um but they're also doing it in a way that is enhancing their environment they know how to do it they're willing to share their story in their language so rather than maybe listening to the scientists or the policymakers or the politicians listen to this farmer here he'll tell you what to do and how to do it and how it's working financially in terms of his animal health and his pasture health and so on and believe him and that's worked really well for us that's kind of got to that heart piece that look it's not the case of us lecturing to you but it's the case of us sharing these great ideas and these great farming for nature ambassadors their stories with you to show what's possible so I think we've been we've been um, yeah working on all those three funds here in the barn and it's worked pretty well for us. Um, it takes a lot of efforts and a lot of hard work, but I think it's it shows us a way forward. Can you talk a little bit more about the high nature value farming and specifically like how are the metrics um, that are being aimed for decided upon, and like what are the ways in which by which the farmers um, you know decide what targets they're going for is this an easy process or is it very complex is it very depending on what they're doing how does that work it's all really easy <laughs> no, it is it can it can seem complicated but it's not so um high nature value farming describes areas um in ireland and across europe and elsewhere where farming is a key component of delivering high high nature outcomes so Think of the mountains and the Alps and across Europe. Think of some of the wetland areas which have been farmed traditionally with livestock and some tillage over the years and nature and habitats have evolved in harmony with that. So those are kind of high nature value farming areas. And when farming becomes very intensive in those areas or more commonly if farming stops or reduces in those areas, then you start to lose biodiversity and lose tradition. So I think in those high nature value areas, and one of them is the barn, what we need to do is sustain a sustainable relationship between people and the land because if we lose it we lose a lot of really good biodiversity and um and, and cultural heritage so how do we do that as i said we pay for the ecosystem services here in the barn and your question is how do we how do we capture that how, how do we capture those benefits 
So what we tend to do in, is in, in, in areas like the barn, we identify what are the main environmental priorities. And for us, there's three. One is biodiversity. We need to sustain this incredible biodiversity we've got. Secondly, it's water quality. We need clean water for animals and for human health. And thirdly, we need to sustain the um, archaeological landscape here, these old monuments we need to make sure they're looked after. So what we do very simply is recognising those three priorities, we developed a simple scorecard, uh, basically an A4 sheet paper with 10 questions. And every year, a trained advisor or one of my team will walk each field on the farm and do an assessment looking at is grazing too high or too low for the biodiversity values? Is the feeding system that you're using, it could be silage or it could be concentrate or maybe no feeding system, is that appropriate? We're looking at the condition of the water sources and the soil health through a visual examination. We're looking at the presence of invasive species and how prominent they are. We're basically doing a quick pulse, check on the pulse of that field to see um, if it's as healthy uh, environmentally as we'd like. We're translating that data into a score um, from zero to 10. So 10 out of 10 means everything is as good as it possibly could be. Zero out of 10 means it's crap, it's being wrecked, it's being damaged. And five is somewhere in the middle. It's like, okay, kind of thing, right? And then we built uh, scores uh, or payments rather uh, uh, to accord with that. So we don't pay any farmer for a field if it's below score five. Uh, uh, and also then for scores of nine and 10, we give a bonus of 25 and 50%. So there's a really good incentive for farmers to manage their livestock and produce great food, but in a way that will drive up the environmental health of the field and therefore they can leverage out that additional source of funding um, for their ecosystem services. We've been doing it for 12 years. We were told initially that we we're crazy. Farmers would be complaining all the time. My score is too low and this system isn't fair. But farmers love it because it gives them freedom. Um, we love it because it gives us data on the environmental health of each field on each farm each year for the last 10 years. And the taxpayer loves it because you're only paying for what you get. You're not paying for the crap anymore. You're paying for the delivery of these really good services. So it's worked, it's worked really, really well. Like it's not a perfect system, but it's just so much better than the other systems that we've got in place at the moment, which are basically telling farmers what to do, how to do it and when to do it. And farmers really don't like that. Do you find that the way that you're doing it um, in part kind of takes away a lot of the criticisms that some farmers would have around the idea of getting subsidies you know, a principled objection, say a lot of people say like, oh, why I don't, if I'm doing well, I don't need a government subsidy. And that's, you know, artificially changing things. Do you find that there is a lot of this reaction to the way that you guys are doing it or not so much? Well, we, we rarely get farmers complaining about getting subsidies because, you know, it's nice to get the money, isn't it? They do obviously complain about all the sort of um, bureaucracy and, and conditions around them. But you're right, kind of almost uniquely with this um, approach uh, in the burn, we've kind of taken a lot of that, like this is very farmer-centered, so we've taken a lot of the negatives out of it, so taken all the paperwork out, so we deal with all that crap for the farmer, and taken away the penalty, the notion of penalties, and instead talking positive about uh, solutions and about incentives. But most importantly, um, if you talk to a farmer, one of the core values that a farmer has is the freedom to farm so really honoring that that need we're saying look we totally respect your expertise and your your willingness to, to your desire to manage the land as you best see fit and we're going to support you to do that if you deliver what we want if you don't that's fine but you know so i think farmers really respect that and they feel 
a strong ownership of this program because they know they're doing good for their region and for their community. And most importantly for us, nature loves it because what you got now is on every field, a different farmer doing a different thing at a different time. And of course, nature, nature loves diversity of management because you've got lots of solutions. So it's keeping this countryside complex. That's what I like. It's keeping the countryside complex and that's what nature needs. That's what we all need as well if to be resilient um, at a time of change. I'm Dylan Hoyer, host of Meet in 3 on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainably managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, based in Jalisco, where together they transform agave byproducts and wastewater into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. Thanks to HRN, I ventured into the world of cooking with sumac, and I have not looked back since. I was listening to A Taste of the Past with my mom, and there was an episode about the history of American food. It inspired me to make it the subject of my final social studies project, and I ended up getting an A. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about whether or not there are any other programs that you've inspired in different parts of Ireland or if there are people that are in the process of trying to set up something similar to yours. Yeah, um, we've, we've had really good success in that regard, Kate. So we started our research back in 2005, and then the program kicked off in 2010, the Burn program. We've got a group of little islands nearby us, the Aran Islands, which are quite similar, and they've adopted a similar approach back in, I think, 2015. And it was a real success over there as well. And then about 2016, our Department of Agriculture invested in this kind of farmer-centered um result-based model to deal with issues, controversial issues, such as the management of the hen harrier, which is a very rare and important um, bird of prey, uh, the freshwater pearl mussel, which is um, um, a, a species, a mussel species, which relies on really clean uh, water uh, in catchments. So those were two good examples of really challenging issues to which this 
um, farmer-centered result-based um, approach was applied. Um, and to huge effect, it really started to turn populations of those um, hen harriers around in a very positive way. And farmers really liked being part of the programs. And then they tested this model out in other landscapes from Kerry to Wicklow to um, Carlow and other places like that for different purposes. And it worked really well because farmers felt they were part of something that their opinion counted and they're getting paid for um, paid for their, their performance, for their results. And of course, that's really important to farmers that these, this funding isn't seen as a handout, um, but that it's earned, that there's a respect with it. So the really good news, if, if you love Ireland, um, is that our Department of Agriculture have now invested up to 150 million euros per year across over a million hectares of high nature valley farmland into this type of approach. So there's eight big regions in Ireland. One of them is Donegal. Another one would be... Um, Sligo Leitrim, another would be um, West Kerry, for instance. So big regions, eight of them across Ireland, where there's going to be local team in place advising and supporting farmers to improve their ecosystem service outcomes so that they can improve their profit margins on the farms and, and, and benefit the environment. So it's been a big, now they're all different because these regions are different, but they've all been inspired, I think, a little bit by what has been done in the Burham. And then we've got lots of groups from all over Europe and sometimes internationally wanting to know how this system works. So yeah, we've had a, we've been so busy doing our own thing here in the barn, uh, my team, and we've got a great team here that we haven't been able to, go to, to do much outreach, but we've had so many people come to us looking for information and ideas based on the results of the work here that it's been, it's, it's almost spread itself organically, I suppose. So yeah, it's had, it's had a great ripple effect in that regard. I'm curious as to whether or not any of these incentives or farmer-led changes involve animal protection. I know that there's, is it badgers that that seem to be an issue for a lot of farmers? I had also read somewhere that, you know, there's some projects in Ireland trying to reintroduce eagles and there have been some issues with some birds eating like different kind. I don't know if it's pesticide or poison or something that some farmers mm -hmm. in some areas leave out. And so I'm just wondering if, if those sorts of like, whether they're endangered species or um, how maybe some of these projects might involve protecting some, some animals. Yeah. Um, well, the best example is the one I mentioned before, which is the hen harrier, which is very threatened and very controversial because if you had hen harriers in your land, the land would be designated for them. And that meant you couldn't plant, you know, in some cases, forestry or you couldn't have wind farms. So farmers are angry that their, the value of their land was, was being reduced by virtue of having this bird. But this hen harrier project turned it all around. And what they did is really smart. You should really look it up, but it's, it's a really nice example of how this approach can work. They basically have an assessment system. Um, again, at a field level, you do an assessment. And what you look at is, is this, ha is this habitat suitable for the needs of the hen harrier? So in terms of its prey and its ability to hunt and stuff like that, is it suitable? And if it is, you get a higher score and more money. Along with that, they have some uh, work on predator control um, because the nests are easy to, to get at for some, for some um, wildlife. So they've managed the nests a little bit better. And they've had a huge improvement in successful um, hatchings and fledglings from, from these nests. And if you do have an, a successful nest within your area, the farmers within that area get a bonus payment. So it's, it's when you look up at that bird uh, as a farmer in this area, you no longer see it as a threat or as a problem, but as an opportunity and as a good thing. And that's the beautiful thing about it. 
I mean, farmers do love nature, but they are threatened by, you know, some of the restrictions that come with it, understandably so. And they're also threatened by if this is going to affect my living, you know, there's a problem here. Very few farmers are poisoning birds or, or, or things like that. That's really exceptional, but it's, it's terrible, obviously, when it happens. But I think the majority of farmers, you know, do love nature and these programs are helping them to um, work with nature in, in a meaningful way, in a more deliberate way than, than they would have afforded in the past. So badgers is a different issue. Badgers are, are an issue for the transmission of TB and there's a state scheme of badger control, which is, is yeah, it's controversial, but it's maybe, it's not one that we deal with necessarily because um, um, while we have a lot of badgers in the burn and they really do like the habitat we have here, we have this whole issue around disease as well, which is a very emotive one. So. Um, yeah, we don't get into that space too much here at the moment. The way that you're, the way that you've described the program, uh, you know, pay farmers for environmentally beneficial outcomes. It sounds so simple, and it, you know, appears to be having positive results. So, I'm curious what you think are the limitations of an approach like that, if there are any, and um, why isn't this approach used more? broadly both in ireland and around the world yeah that's 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 a good question um i suppose if if i'm looking at europe we have a long history of you know agri environmental payments where you're paying farmers to um undertake actions to improve the environment they're often seen as quite top down uh, sometimes they're not really proven to deliver and we spend billions on them with probably very limited effect but we've built up whole systems now within our ministries to accommodate this sort of mechanism for funding delivery. And farmers have gotten used to certain, you know, action-based approaches where they sign the contract and that's it for five years type thing. So the systems are fairly locked in to existing structures. And what we're proposing is something new and much more dynamic. Uh, so I suppose the first line of resistance would be um, these sort of the, the, the structures uh, within government departments, which you know are kind of risk averse and like to have everything mapped out carefully, and it's difficult then to accommodate something as fluid and dynamic as this. Um, I suppose the second thing then um, obstacle would be the capacity. So you do need well-trained advisors and scientists uh, to develop scorecards and so on, and to de- deliver on the ground. That's not a huge issue. We've gotten around that. That that that's not a problem. I don't think there's any problem getting farmers to buy into this. <clears throat> okay, some of the powers that be, the representative bodies um, for farmers might have concerns about funding leaking maybe from some areas of farming to others. So with our system, the more wildlife and biodiversity you have, the more of these funds that you get, uh, theoretically. So it's there's some redistribution of funding. So some farmers might resist that, but the majority of farmers that we deal with are really happy with the opportunity. Um, but those and the technology isn't a limiting factor either i think so i mean to my mind the biggest obstacle to uptake is um i suppose the fact that we're used to certain systems and these publicly funded systems are quite slow to change but i'd argue that we need radical change right now um we need to mobilize landowners across ireland and europe and across the world to become agents of change for the environment and this is one way of unlocking that um potential what we've done up to now hasn't really worked Whereas if we invest in farmers, both financially in terms of the advice and support that we give them and the engagement with them, I think they can really make a massive difference. So we've done well in Ireland, in fairness, with our ministry, um, Max, but um, we'd like to see this sort of model 
or whatever model works. We're not wedded to this model, but this model has worked well for us. It's intuitive. It just makes sense. It's very simple. But we'd like to see model like this or, or, or whatever model works up, taken up quickly elsewhere because we need, we need things to happen pretty quickly right now. I love the idea of um, farmers as agents of change. And I know you mentioned how much we need more programs such as your own around the world. Do you think that your work has changed at all as the threat of climate change becomes more acute and urgent? Or do you think that perhaps more people are paying attention now for that reason? I think um, so. The, the climate actually has 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 it's become an obviously really significant um, issue for all of us, and I suppose really it's it's lending a sense of urgency to what we do. It's not without its problems. I think it, it, at a national level, a lot of farmers feel victimized and targeted um, as the uh, uh, you know as the, sort of the agents of destruction when it comes to biodiversity and the climate. And there, I mean, there is truth to that. You can't deny that some practices are very negative. So I think it's a, it's a challenge to try and turn that around into saying, look, that you're actually, you're the solution here. You guys are the solution. Um, and we need to get you, get you, get you going. So I think climate has, has, has posed, climate agenda uh, has posed a lot of challenges uh, and really impresses upon us the urgency of dealing with us. But we're already dealing with a biodiversity crisis um, here in Ireland. And for us here in the Burren, I guess that's the big focus is biodiversity. And with the climate piece, then we're having to look at ways of adapting uh, to climate change, such as um, our feeding systems, trying to come up with more climate friendly feeding systems, trying to come up with um, systems uh, to cater for extended drought periods, which are becoming more frequent here. So building water storage. Uh, investing in water storage so the cattle can continue to graze even when we have an extended drought period, different things like that. So it's 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 part of the challenge. It just adds a whole um, new dimension to the kind of challenges that we face um, in, 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 uh, at, at the moment. But I think this result-based system that we have can accommodate things like carbon sequestration, um, bare soils, which are obviously contributing to carbon loss. So we can we can build. We can build carbon into scorecards, which also deal with climate and biodiversity, for instance. So I think this system is flexible enough to accommodate some of the challenges we have with regard to climate as well. Yeah. I was wondering if you have been following the news and saw the uh, protests that the Dutch farmers are currently um, carrying out and some of the really heavy handed police response that basically just happened, basically, I think, in the last day or so. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that in terms of, um, you know, different approaches to uh, ways to incorporate farmers into dealing with climate change issues and how that compares specifically to with what you all are doing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm vaguely aware of it. I haven't seen the protest, but I think to me, from what I've heard of it, this is what happens when we don't act in time, that there's going to be issues of really severe conflict. And I think we're heading that way in a lot of countries. I know in Ireland here, we're trying to agree carbon budgets for different sectors, and uh, there's a lot of unease about the effect that we will have on farming. And there's a real, there's really um, a lot of resistance within the farming community to that. So like, it, there's no easy, there's really no easy answers here. This is going to be tough for everybody, not just farmers. But I think going back to how you address that, I think there's three things I'd stick with the pocket, the head and the heart. We've got to come up with better financial models, which will reward farmers who do more for carbon or biodiversity or water quality because of providing a service which society desperately needs. 
I think we do need to do a lot more in terms of the research, but also the knowledge sharing piece, like how do you farm in a way that's more sustainable? That information isn't always as accessible as we'd like. But the big challenge is we're going to have to get farmers on side. We're going to have to, I mean, to me, I just think that we're going to have to get to a position where we see farmers and farmers see themselves even more importantly as something way more than food producers that their identity is wrapped up around. Not quite saving the world, but really making the difference when it comes to nutritious food, um, um, rich biodiversity, clean water, clean air, and sequestering carbon at the same time. I actually think it's possible. I don't think it'll be for everybody, but I think it's possible and we need to back those farmers to do that. And we need to highlight those who've done it and share their stories and celebrate them um, and focus on the positive. Too much of the narrative is so negative now around farming and the environment. And you can see why, that there's there are issues and there are sectors which are particularly challenging, I guess. But there's also really good stories and there's really good solutions out there and we need to scale them rapidly. That sounds great. There's also another project that you're involved in called the Hare's Corner that I wanted to ask you about. If I'm understanding it correctly, it moves a little bit away from farmers and seems like a great way to get local people involved in maybe rewilding parts of their own land. Yeah, so that's a beautiful project. So um, as part of Burn Bio Trust, which also sponsors the Farming for Nature initiative, um, which I might just mention as being just this beautiful project where we've made short films with farmers who are doing amazing things for nature across Ireland. And we've posted them on, on our, our website and we've developed all sorts of resources for farmers, sharing knowledge with each other, whether it's Q&A sessions or webinars or podcasts or whether it's written information. But um, while we were doing that, we, were, we kind of became aware of, you know, that there really is an appetite on the ground amongst people to do something for the environment and for nature. So um, we got some funding from our Department of Agriculture to, to pay for some woodlands, mini woodlands, these little pocket-sized woodlands to be planted using um, a native pine tree. We relocated uh, a, a, a pine tree, which is thought to have been lost from the Irish flora here in the Burren. And we're trying to spread that little tree back around um, County Clare and beyond. So we gave some funding. Um, uh, to, we got some funding to do that. But at the same time, we also got funding to improve some of our wetlands. So we used that money um, to create a new project called the Harris Corner. And the Harris Corner refers to that little corner of a field or that bit of slope, a bit of wet ground, which farmers couldn't quite get at before in terms of the heavy machinery and the, you know, the intensive management. And they basically said, ah, should we leave that to nature? That, that's the Harris Corner. So we borrowed that expression um, to sort of refer to small but meaningful interventions that farmers and landowners could do for nature on their land. So a pond, a, a, a wildlife pond is one of the most best and most impactful things you can do for nature on your land. No matter where you are in the world, it's fantastic. And it has the added benefit of, you know, acting as a water store during periods of drought. So we offered that to landowners across Clare as an option where we give them a small amount of funding, usually only maybe what dollars, about a thousand dollars to put a pond in. And we'd give them advice on how to do it. And we'd assess the site to make sure it wasn't damaging any of the habitat and creating it. Then we also offered them the opportunity to put some of these native pine woodlands onto their farm right across the county. And then we also had an option to plant native fruit trees sourced from Irish Seed Savers, this great local um, association here in Clare. And we had a huge uptake. So we had within six months, we had 40 woodlands, 50 ponds, and I think about 50 orchards planted right across County Clare for a tiny amount of funding. And what was lovely about it was that we had farmers, we had landowners, we had community groups, we had men sheds, 
applying for these small scale funding for these little projects. But so many people went and did them and had such pride in them and shared all the images. And they actually put in additional ponds, many of them. Um, uh, that was just a wonderful project and it showed the appetite that there is out there to do something, however small, for nature. And it was very empowering. So we've we've been gathering up bits of funding here, there and everywhere to try and um, scale it out. So we've currently a second um, phase in County Clare. So we're going to have another 100 Harris Corners across the county and hopefully in County Mayo as well, we're going to have this. And it's nice because farmers have been accused of you know, destroying small scale habitats because of policy reasons. But now we're restoring these habitats and it's really um, it's really inspiring to see it being done um, right across the county and hopefully the country in future. That sounds really incredible. I'm reminded of a book I read uh, last year, or it was over the last couple of years. It's Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Ministry for the Future. And he's a science fiction author. And this book in particular was dealing with the climate crisis and trying to imagine ways that you know, ways that we can actually effectively respond to it. And uh, to be really honest, a lot of your work sounds like some of the stuff that he was imagining in that book. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or if you've made that connection, but it's super cool to hear uh, a lot of what you're talking about because, you know, that was something that he was basically imagining in this book. I'm not sure. Maybe he was, maybe he read some stuff about what you're doing and was inspired by that. But uh, yeah, I can't say I read it. But it does give you hope um, because I think talk is one thing, but we're running out of time for talking and we're kind of need to, we need to start acting. And I think by acting, you're empowering. So even, even putting something small in, in, in your yard, that can kind of lead onto something bigger or a collaboration with other people. And that's where change comes from. It's those small interventions, accumulating, snowballing. Um, so it's really inspiring. I find it really inspiring, the response that we've got from people and the pride they've taken in their work and how they've kind of enthused about it to others. So I'm really hopeful for this little project, um, which again, like all our work, most of our work is done on a charitable basis. I'm really looking forward to it making that, that impact that we all need to see happening on the ground. Great. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much. Kate, did you have any other? Um... Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I think it's all really inspiring. Um, I guess if I if I had to ask one more question, I'm just curious if you might have any success stories that you might want to share from the Farming for Nature project, if there's any farmers in particular that have come through it and just maybe really had their minds expanded or really changed the way that they looked at the work that they were doing themselves. It's incredible. Um, Caitlin, you mentioned the stories that we've come across there are just amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously involved in the, the environmental field, but I would say hand on heart that these are my complete heroes because these are the guys who do it day in, day out um, with very little acclaim. They're making they're making the difference. We had, we had a meeting with our Farm for Nature ambassadors about a month ago, and one guy came up, one of the farmers said, look, I have a confession to make. I'm a, I'm a pond addict. I put 17 wildlife ponds in my farm over the last few years. Another guy came up and said, well, sorry to say this, but I put 18 in. <laughs> but one of the nicest stories was from our winners last year. We have a, a public vote for who, you know, your favorite farmer, just as a way of bringing attention to these guys. And it was a father and son combination. I was, there were big tillage farmers in the east of Ireland, very productive guys, uh, really, you know, strongly commercial farmers. And the father was talking about when he was, you know, farming 50 years ago, he'd be plowing the field and like there'd be a flock of gulls and birds behind the plow, uh, getting the earthworms. And then as times went on in the 70s and early 80s, the birds disappeared. And you're wondering why? Well, there was no earthworms. The soil's getting compacted and 
from overtilling and stuff like that. Uh, it was getting unhealthier and more dependent on chemical interventions. And then his son took over and he just developed this interest um, in kind of no, doing things differently. Um, so kind of mintil systems and more generative practices. And he basically was self-taught um, using networks like Base Ireland. He, he figured out a lot of these solutions. And gradually the birds started to come back and his input costs started to go down and his yield started to stabilize to a level where he could keep going. And this guy is totally now wired into this. He just thinks this is brilliant because, you know, I'm cutting my input costs. I'm sustaining really good outcomes. My soil is so much healthier. I can put a spade in any part of my field and there's earthworms. It's amazing. So in the context of the Ukrainian crisis and the environmental crisis, he is where we all need to be at. He's farming in an amazing way. But um, it was wonderful speaking afterwards after the award to the, his father. And I said, like, this is amazing. You must be so proud of, of what you've achieved yourself and your son. And um, like, why why did you do or why don't your neighbours follow you? And he said, he said something very interesting to me. I think it's probably relevant to, to all of your audiences. He said that like, when, when we started this, uh, we, were on, we were on one of these spinning wheels, but and it wasn't going too quick. So we were able to get off. But now this wheel is spinning so fast that there's farmers on this wheel. They've got, you know, big investments. They've got big debts. And this wheel is spinning so fast. All they can do is try to keep going because if they fall off the wheel, they're, they're gone, you know. So I think he, he managed to make the change in time. But I suppose by doing what he did, this farmer and his son, they've shown the power of the possibility to others that maybe there's an alternative way if they can manage to get off that spinning wheel and start following those um, actions, I think, to me, that's, that's the future. And that's, that I find really inspiring. People who have, you know, who've made a journey from being very intensive and commercial to still being commercial, but doing it in a whole different way that, 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 that's relevant to so many people across the world. So that, that, there's one of many stories I could share. But check out Farm for Nature. It's, it's, it's uh, full of great stories like that. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Thank you so much for the chat. It's really great to talk to you. And I think people are going to be really excited to to listen to it. So I really appreciate your time. And it's really inspiring to hear about the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much, guys. And the nice thing about everything I've said is I'm not making any of it up. <laughs> it's all actually wonderfully true. So not that we're not without our problems and challenges and we're exhausted from, from all the work we're doing, but it's very fulfilling and it's very... Um, it's very, I guess, um, meaningful this day and age, given the crises that we face. So, yeah, thanks, oh, thanks great. for sharing the story. Keep it up, and we're excited and happy to be able to share some of some of your stories. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. <laughs>